Welcome to Studio of the Future. Hello, future fans. Today's show features two Austin icons, both movers and shakers, for decades in politics, philanthropy, writing, and the arts. They retain a cornucopia of cool Austin history, and I consider them true bon vivants. Dan Bullock is a true Texas Renaissance man. He's a writer, public speaker, leadership consultant, singer-songwriter, and past director for Governor Mark White. He's been recognized in the Austin American Statesman, Dallas Morning News, Southwest Airlines Magazine, and Texas Monthly. He's received numerous accolades. He's married to Annette DeMeo Carlozzi, retired head curator of the Blanton Museum of Art here in Austin, and he is founder of the Mosey Project, which we'll talk about today. Forrest Priest is a fifth-generation Austin native who spent 39 years in the advertising business, running his own agency, Good Right Arm, before retiring in 2005. He and his wife, Linda Ball, support a number of arts, literary, and health-related causes in Austin, and they are on the Director's Council of the Butler School of Music at the University of Texas. Since 2001, he has written a personalities column for West Austin News, and I would like to add he is a food and wine connoisseur and knows all the local chefs past and present. Welcome, Dan and Forrest. I'm really curious. Um, I know, Forrest, you've come from a family of, of it's a fifth generation of Austinites, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd really love to know a little bit a little bit about that. And then I'd love to know how you ended up in Austin too, Dan. So let's start with you, Forrest. Well, okay, William Morton Priest, my great-great-grandfather came to the Hill Country in 1851. And uh, his son, one of his sons was Richard Lincoln Priest, who's my great-grandfather. And Richard Lincoln Priest was a Union spy during the Civil War. And wow. with three other guys, there was a bounty on his head. And they, they trailed between here and Houston, tracking Confederate troop movements, relaying them back to the Union, you see. Mm. Priests have always been kind of stubborn in that way. They don't have to go along with everything that's going on around them. And, uh, yeah, he later became a Texas Ranger. Huh. And then, uh, Did you ever want to be a Texas Ranger? No. no. You like, do you like horses? I mean, I, I appreciate horses, but I don't really like them. They'd be hard to have downtown, I think. Yeah, that's right. And your father was? Well, my father was Forrest Priest Sr. He was a carpenter his whole life, and oh. he uh, died at 100. He, he was born in 1910 and died in 2011. He'd, he'd still be alive. He hadn't broken his hip, probably. I mean, he lived a long life right there. He grew up at 4212, what is now Medical Parkway. They want to be more urbane. And call it, they changed the name to Medical Parkway, you see. And, oh. But the, the, the family house where my dad and his seven brothers and sisters grew up in was there. And that house which, is No, it's the house. I think Austin Radiological Association's there. Now they built a small office building there. It used to be EZs kind of over in the neighborhood. And yeah. now, now I think it's the Rudy's Barbecue. Okay. Oh. They've changed it. That, oh, I know exactly. When I was growing up, that was 2J Hamburgers. I, I, that was yeah. my idea of Nirvana, going to 2J Hamburgers, riding my bicycle over there, and getting a 13 cent cheeseburger, man. That was that was just ecstasy for me. It's on the, the, the family houses. In fact, there was a cornfield behind the family house. I used to. Sometimes I went out there and planted little kernels of corn seeds, and they'd come up, and we get to pick so the, the corn. So the corn was as high as an elephant's Yeah, all that stuff, yeah. <laughs> and how did you end up in Austin, Dan? Well, Forrest and, and his family are the, the real constant living pioneers over time here. Mine did little skirmishes 
But one of note was Richard Bullock, who had the Bullock Hotel at 6th and Congress and the infamous pig incident with the French legation and all wait, that. Wait, 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 wait. What's the, what's in, <laughs> wait, I want to hear about a pig. What? Well, one of my actual relatives, most people think I'm related to Bob and, and uh, we're not really. We called each other cousin. But and you should explain you know, who Bob Bullock was. Bob Bullock. In case people yes, don't know. Bob Bullock. Mm-hmm our notorious Texas politician and who was a great public servant and quite a character. But I am related to Richard Bullock, who had the first hotel. It was called either the Bullock Hotel or the Bullock Inn. Uh, When you go into One American Center and go down to the south door of One American Center, there's a bronze plaque on the wall to the Bullock Hotel. And Angelina Eberly, who fired the cannon, was one of the innkeepers of the Bullock Hotel. There were several innkeepers there. Um, Richard Bullock hosted Sam Houston as Houston would come up here for business. This was at the time when Texas was in transformation from a republic to a state. Hmm. So this is in the 1830s, the late 1830s. Bullock raised the legs on the dining table because Houston was a big man. He raised the legs on the dining table so Houston could sit under it and extended the bed so Houston would be comfortable. And one other little note that I'm proud of, since Austin is such a musical community, the first piano in public was in the Bullock Hotel. The first piano in Austin was in the Bullock Hotel. Do you know where that piano is? Oh, gosh, no. I mean, nothing's Mm -hmm. around there. The pig incident, in quick summary, is that Bullock had pigs. He had this inn there. The French consulate set up shop fairly close to Bullock's Hotel while they were making the plans to build the French legation up the hill, the one that we have now, Mm -hmm. that French legation. The French wanted better food than we Texans normally enjoy, so they decided to do a garden for fresh fruits and vegetables. You know, we Texans have been eating from the basic different browns and grays group (laughs) through most of our lives. They wanted better than that. So they fixed these elaborate gardens, and Bullock's pigs tore up the gardens and created this Uh what the pig incident, which was a quite a quite a deal. The French protested the boorish Texan behavior represented by my relatives and had whatever the legal process was, wherein the local justice system told the French, we don't care about you, and and we're not going to punish Bullock. We don't like you all anyway. Mm. And so de Saligny, that's my Fort Stockton pronunciation of the consul, French consul, he picked up and went to New Orleans. Uh, You know, I'm going to go back and be with my people and get away from these boorish Texans, Mm. Texians. So I I wonder if, Forrest, if your grandfather knew Dan's grandfather and 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 frequented the Bullock Inn. Do you know if that ever happened? I doubt it. I mean, where our family house was was outside the city limits. Do you know? I mean, 4212 Medical, well, Alice Avenue Mm -hmm. was outside. It was a rural route. Wow. So so the Ocimino today, which seems connected with north, south, east, west, that didn't even exist. No, Austin was just Central Austin. Yeah, pretty much. Proper. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, that, the legend has it that if you went 
west of Lamar Boulevard at a certain time in history. You needed a cavalry escort to keep from getting attacked by the Indians. Oh, my. Yeah, that's, I've heard that now. Well, well and supposedly, and you, you know more about Austin history than I do, but the, that supposedly Stephen F. Austin had selected the site where Laguna Gloria is. He had selected that for his town home, home site and for some reason or another gave it up so that ultimately it went into Clara Driscoll Severe's right. yeah. um, ownership, and she's the one who owned and fixed up the, the house and built built the house, I guess, yeah. there where Laguna mm-hmm. Gloria is right now. And Laguna but, Gloria, for anyone listening, is a— as a local contemporary art, art museum. museum out 38th Street west of Central. Yeah, it's actually Austin. called part of the the contemporary. Now. The contemporary yeah, yeah. Laguna Gloria. That's correct. Yeah. Well, Forrest, I want to acknowledge you. When I'm looking for the hot spot in Austin, what the best food is, the the best place to get a, a good wine, I always go to Facebook and I look you up because not only do you post these beautiful photographs, but you seem to know all the chefs locally. So I was wondering if you could share some past chef stories and or some local chefs right now that you think are hot and up and coming. Well, sure. Uh the, the the guy who's the man, I'd say, is Elmore Prams at the Four Seasons. He's been there since Four Seasons Hotel. He's been there since day one. They opened in 80, 1986. Fat Linda and I were so jazzed that we had a Four Seasons in town. We went down and rented a room during the when they were, had the soft opening. We were just so stoked that we were actually going to get a Four Seasons in town. But Elmore was the chef then. And, you know, the, the deal is most chefs in the Four Seasons chain, who are all extremely talented, obviously, are moved around on a regular basis, but he steadfastly refused to leave Austin. He he wanted to stay, and so he has, I mean, wow. what, 86 till now, he's still there, the executive chef, you know. So, so Four Seasons chefs are kind of like Methodist ministers, they get moved They, they get moved. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, but then uh, I say of up-and-coming James Robert at Fix is a fantastic chef. I, I, I like the heck out of what he does. And that's, that's, that's kind of southern of a, comfort. That's southern comfort mm-hmm. food, but ups, upscale southern comfort food, you'd say. I mean, they're, they're biscuits out of this world. They have things like pork shoulder, which is fantastic, and the, their fish dishes are wonderful, and the deviled eggs are outstanding. <laughs> I don't they're, think you hear a lot about deviled eggs as being yeah, outstanding, but I'm going to have to yeah. go try one now. Uh, of course, David Bull's a fantastic chef. He's mm-hmm. with the La Corsia group. And gosh, you got to say Larry McGuire, the McGuire-Mormon group. Oh, man. I mean, now I don't know if Larry is actively cooking anymore. He's he's just the executive that runs the whole thing. But he, I mean, he is a chef by trade, but mm-hmm. they just keep opening fantastic restaurants all over town. They just opened, the newest one they just opened was, it's called Joanne, right there on South Congress where um, Snack Bar used to be mm-hmm. in the old Austin Motel. Oh, I love the Austin Motel. Yeah, well, they used to have Snack Bar in there. And uh, this part of the McGuire Mormon chain now. And they're going to have all the restaurants in the new proper hotel when it opens. Would you say Austin's becoming known as a foodie city? Well, it is. As a right. matter of fact, I mean, it, it's, it's been a real renaissance situation. I mean, as far as us coming of age as a food destination situation, I mean, I— I was on the board of the Texas Hill Country Wine and Food Festival back, oh gosh, when was that? The late, uh, late 90s, late oh. 90s, back in there. And uh, back then, we'd, we'd get chefs in from out of town. They're all kind of like, well, 
Austin's kind of a little outpost, but they're really in a food city. And now we're like, well, we we get listed among the the top play. Well, we're not on a par with San Francisco or New York. I'm not saying that, but you know, we're up and coming for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the things I noticed when I first moved to Austin in 1994, I used to go to Las Manitas. And I remember I'd walk in and there would be Governor Ann Richards or I could sit next to Charlie Sexton and have a coffee. Yeah. And and the whole Austin vibe felt very um, friendly. Like it was one big family. No matter where you went in town, you knew people and nobody was greater than or less than. It just felt like we were all yeah. equal. So Las Manitas and the Texas Chili Parlor. Schultz Garden for peace. Schultz Garden. Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk about how food and politics have been so important. Well, I'm sure Austin. Dan will help me out on that one. Because this is a political town. Then the politicos seek the watering holes, yeah. uh, number one, and then maybe the <laughs> the restaurants number two if they're going to need to buy somebody's dinner. Otherwise, they just like to buy them two or three drinks and ply them with whatever so they can get whatever assistance they need. Some of these steakhouses and downtown bars would have various off limits for their staffs to go because they knew that some of their associates might actually be there with their nieces or would be doing some <laughs> other sorts of things that would not be wanting to be made That's public. That's the cover word, nieces. So, uh, <laughs> or debutantes. You know, right? mm. Whatever. And so there, there's always just been the politics and the, the characters and the politicos, and they were in a narrow downtown centrist area mm. just because of the proximity to the capital. So, capital, so yeah. the Driscoll, has that played a big part? I know in the past, it was there's a lot of history to the Oh, goodness, Hotel, yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, Linda Johnson had his, his suite there, you know, that he occupied on a regular basis. I mean, that was his favorite place. Yeah, that was Driscoll's where he held court. Oh, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Of course, people don't realize when the Johnsons started the TV station, KBC, back in 52, the very first live broadcast for KBC were coming from the base of the transmitter tower out there on Mount Barker. And then uh, when they moved to an actual studio, a real studio, it was in the Driscoll. That it was there from gosh, I'm gonna say from '53 till '60, 1960 is when they finally got the place at 10th and Brazos. Ah. But when I was growing up in the '50s, that was that was where the TV station was was in the Driscoll in that southeast corner there, where you later became the remember the cabaret bar. It was kind of a fancy thing. That was kind of a fancy bar. It was totally tied into the whole Johnson thing, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, recently, I went to the Headliners Club with Dan. He yeah. was gracious and took my husband and I up to the secret chambers. <laughs> and uh, and he gave us this great tour, including the bathroom. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the origins of the Headliners Club and a little bit of backstory about that, because it was really interesting when you were talking about it. Well, and you check me for facts here. I'm, uh, <laughs> As I basically understand it, the genesis of the Headliners Club was war correspondents who were basically from Austin, World War II. Uh, some of them meet, including Charles Green, yeah. who became the publisher of the, of the, the Statesman. Statesman. Yeah. Um, he and a, a gentleman who became an attorney here named Gibson Randall and a couple of other folks, they met in San Francisco following the end of World War II. And who 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 broke the ranks and and introduced women into the headliners club? I got a call. I was on the board of uh, the headliners, and and you I were a whippersnapper. You were young. Oh, they brought me in to sort of break the curve because the average age at the time was about seventy, and I was in my late thirties or right around forty or so. But anyway, I was on the board, and 
We got a call last one evening from a panicked another Anglo male who was in in the leadership down there, and he said, "I've just got to say we we've, we've got a challenge here." Liz Carpenter has called and said she is going to be a member of the Headliners Club, and so <laughs> so <laughs> she didn't ask. We, she just no, she didn't ask, and and this be. was a, it was at a men it was a men's only place at the time, and there was a a waiting list to get in there and you had to have recommendations but liz carpenter was a force of nature and was lady bird's press secretary very close to the lyndon johnson administration and so when when johnson came back from washington to go to the ranch and to retire basically to the ranch liz carpenter came back and so she called and and told us that she was going to be a member of the headliners and how did how did y'all handle that we handled it in a great male fashion, an enlightened male fashion, of course. We we were not about to let <laughs> let it appear uh, that what was happening to us actually was happening to us. <laughs> and so we enlightened males had a, a called meeting and nominated several other prominent women in town because we realized that, especially the younger ones of us, we're way beyond time to have a men's only group that honors journalists when there's so many outstanding journalists uh, who are women. And so we nominated several prominent women, including Liz Carpenter, to show how wonderful and generous we were uh, when we knew that if we didn't show something quickly, we were all going to be run over, (laughs) and rightfully so. Yay, Liz. Yeah. In 1966, Forrest, you were a 20-year-old English major at UT. And you've described that day as evil in the air. Do you mind sharing a truncated version of the events you witnessed and how okay, that Okay, I'll try not to give you the non-reader's digest version here, but okay. Uh, yeah, that, that summer I had a set schedule of at a 9 o'clock class at the old journalism school building, which is on that extension of 24th that goes through campus, and at a 1 o'clock class in the business economics building. And in between I had a set date with two old Longhorn band pals to have lunch in the Rexall drugstore in the 2300 block of the drag at 11.20. That day, we had finished lunch. And like I say, it was really a set little schedule I had. We usually finished lunch right at 11.45 and paid for our burgers and we're heading out the door. The lady at the cash register was checking us out and said, hey, you guys better not go out there. Somebody's shooting a gun. And we said, oh, yeah, right. And just instinct, I turned around, looked at the old Coca-Cola clock behind the soda fountain, and it said it was right at, just past 11.50, May 11.52. So we, of course, we just went on outside anyway. This was 1966, and mass shootings really weren't uh, that prevalent any at that mm-hmm. point in time. And uh, we stood there, we were right next, there used to be a little newsstand right next door to the, to the drugstore, and we heard some pops off in the distance, like from the main mall. It was like, like that. In our infinite wisdom, we decided those were firecrackers. That some fool has some left over from the Fourth of July, and that mm-hmm. he's boy, that guy's gonna get in a lot of trouble. He's putting, he's throwing firecrackers on the main mall, and the what wow. that says a lot that in 1966, throwing firecrackers on the main mall would get you in big trouble. That's right. Yeah. 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 I remember all, all of us just kind of said, okay, I'll see you tomorrow, guys. And I, t- I was the one that went south on the drag down to that 
big crosswalk in front of the co-op, and the other the, David and Tom went north mm-hmm. each day. Anyway, for some reason, all three of us had the same premonition at the same time. Just we all said, "Okay, I'll see you tomorrow." And then we just all stopped and quit talking, which is unheard of for the three of us because we're all a bunch of little smarty pants know-it-alls. We're always <laughs> running our mouths, mm-hmm. and uh, I've never had a feeling like that before or since that like. I've been watched, and something is really not right here, and don't move. And about 15 seconds later, a bullet came past my right ear, and it killed a man standing four feet to my right. And uh, his name was Harry Walchuk. He was inside the little newsstand talking to the gentleman who owned the newsstand, and he's trying to find a magazine or something. And um, he died two hours later at the Brackenridge ER. But, of course, we ran back inside the drugstore, and that's where I stayed during the whole rest of the shooting. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, and Dan, you were here during the, the shooting? No, I was not. My sister was. And my sister's roommate was walking to class. And all of a sudden, a young male student grabs her and throws her to the ground. And here, this is the middle of the day. And he says, I think someone's shooting. And she thought maybe she was going to be raped. I mean, what in the world right. is happening here? It's the middle of the day, yeah, and I'm yeah. being Terrifying. thrown down behind the hedge. There was, I know exactly you know, what you're a, talking a about. A hedge there in that main mall yes. that's mm-hmm. been there. I think it's still there. And, Various forms. I'll tell you a quick anecdotal thing, and I'll be real quick on it, but it's of interest here. Uh, One of my Fort Stockton buddies was an intern of one of the top photographers in the country at the time from Dallas, a fellow named Shell Hershorn. Oh, yeah. And Hershorn was down here in Austin for some sort of a conference or workshop or something, and he heard that there was some activity going on up at UT. And so he just was sort of impulsive and drove up. And to make a longer story short, he took the photograph yes. through the good old Wooten barbershop window, uh-huh. a bullet hole. He took the the shot that won the Pulitzer Prize. It was it was published then on Life. It was a Life magazine Life cover magazine. and got the Pulitzer Prize for going through a bullet hole uh, of the tower. He caught the right. tower through a bullet hole. And now then, that that's sort of the good and the nice deal of the brave photographer. Something I learned later, I think, from Neil Spells was that uh, Hershorn was such a pro that when he was in there taking photographs, all of a sudden other people were bringing their cameras out uh, to take photographs of just what all they could to capture the, the moment. And Hershorn goes over and either kicks out or knocks out the window so that no one else, uh, the front window of the, this is the front window of the barbershop. He goes ahead and knocks the window out so that no one else can capture capture that photograph. And supposedly he said, send the bill to Life magazine. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. See, this is why I love you guys. This is like fascinating. This is, this is Yasin. I don't get to know. My kids don't get to know. And you hear people all the time saying, oh, I miss old Austin. Yeah, you know, you're taking me to a place I, I'm never going to get to experience, and the people listening will get to experience. We've just grown too fast. I think, you know, <laughs> most most cities have their own little arc of history, yeah. and Austin has had ours, except we've everything's been so accelerated mm-hmm. that we've gotten, we've evolved yeah. so yeah. quickly that therefore we've lost some of these these. Iconic places that might have been here for a while. And yet I ask an 85-year-old woman the other day whom I thought would commiserate about, oh, uh, miss old Austin and miss all these things. 
And she said, no, I love the new Austin because the new Austin that is attracting all of these people and that aggravates us when we're trying to negotiate the roadways around here is wonderful. There are lots of new cultural opportunities and great restaurants and and great venues of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And so it's creating displacement and disruption to lots of folks, and therefore they're the sacrificial lambs that we talk about. Mm -hmm. But Austin is is a wonderful place of a lot of new and old. And so it's a struggle. You, Dan, have been called a catalyst for community change. And you're big on community building. What's the biggest challenge you would say in Austin right now? I think it's a lot like it is in other parts of the country right now. It's just recognizing and honoring diversity and inclusion and breaking down some of these barriers and these Mm -hmm. stereotypes and just getting people to pull together. So that's a problem on the one hand. But then Austin has such a great spirit and so many neat people Mm -hmm. that I think it's something that can be done. But then we will see what what new emphases and 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 who's who's in power and who are the organizations that that we need to pull together to to make the best communities we can. Well, and speaking of diversity, uh, you two are going to know some of this history too. When I took a leadership Austin class, we were talking about how um, the African American community was pushed out from West Austin to East Austin, and I thirty five is actually this wall or this barrier. And, uh, well, that was codified. I mean, it wasn't just some natural thing. I mean, they actually had in writing, this is where the black people belong. You know? Were you both here during this time, or was it oh, a long no, that's, drawn out? That, that's just history. When, yeah, that's, do you know when that happened? Well, it has, it has been sort of an evolving history, because one of the things that upset me, I was early on active with the Chamber of Commerce and with the Leadership Austin program, and something that upset some of us younger ones at the time was that the— minorities did not feel comfortable with the Austin Chamber of Commerce. It was basically Anglo business people. And so they created the black chambers and the Hispanic chambers. And uh, that upset a bunch of us who just wanted, we wanted people to to get along and work together and be inclusive. But on the other hand, the, the minorities had felt the sting of discrimination for so long that they they thought, well, we appreciate your well-meaningness, mm-hmm. but we're just not going to wait, mm-hmm. and we're not going to do it on your schedule mm-hmm. and in your format. We're going to do it ourselves. And how toxic that is that then later Anglo people will say, that's right. racist oh. to have a black chamber of commerce. Yeah, well, absolutely. If you look uh, back absolutely. into your own history, you helped create that. Because, well, absolutely, yeah. Right? yeah. Well, I think that's why I like to see things, groups like Leadership Austin where they can be more collaborative and bring some of these groups together for shared programs that make yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, it was referred to as the black problem, actual word, problem. Whites were so much in charge of the thing, they, they just had to decide where to put the black people. So they made this district over in East Austin, mm-hmm. you know. What a horrible word. Let's say that people are a problem. What the? That just, that just makes you sick to think that, you know, why would you say something like that, man? You know, it seems so surreal, yeah, especially um, my daughters, both my daughter's generation, uh, one's 22 and one's 18. You know, they're so fluid in how they speak about diversity. They're inclusive of trans people. They're at the, at the McCallum High School, which I know you went to, Forrest, um, on their drill team, they had four trans girls girls are you serious yes um, wow. so you know but the kids don't think of it they don't 
think of it that way. They think of everyone as people. And and it's really amazing to watch. And maybe Austin is a bit of a bubble, but I you know, watching my kids have all kinds of people come over to the house, even it's just been really enlightening and and hopeful. Have either of you you've been to Sweet Home Baptist Church over in West Clarksville? Yeah. Clarksville. Yes, yeah. yes. Now that's yeah. where there was a, a freed slaves black community there. Yes, there was. Right? Absolutely. And so I've been to that church many times. Pastor Manning, Steve Manning is the pastor there right now. Fabulous, energetic um, minister. That, from my understanding, was the first freed slave church in Austin. And I want to go into gentrification because you've probably seen tons of that. So Sweet Home Baptist Church is this very old, big building. It's wonderful. But the elders are dying off. The choir's down to maybe 12 people. And all around that church is huge gentrification, which was also, as I said earlier, the community of African-Americans yeah. that was pushed over to the east side of Austin. Yeah. So yeah. How, do, how do you think our city can deal with this gentrification problem and low-income housing? And do you think the current mayor is doing a good job? Or I, do you have any insight on, on what's happening there? Don't look at me. Look at Forrest. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping you had an answer for that one. Man. <laughs> well, that's too big a question. We don't have to talk about it. That no, wasn't on I, my list. No, but I deal, I deal with a gentrification issue, and I've talked to my wife about it a bunch. My wife, who is an art person and has been a community arts activist in two or three communities, including Atlanta and New Orleans. And gentrification is normal in any growing situation. That's something that we can – it's easy to – make it a, a racist issue or, or, or make it more negative than it really, really is. But it, the dynamics of growing communities contribute to gentrification in most places mm -hmm. yeah. over time. Again, it's more dramatic here in Austin because of the pace. The pace of gentrification is something that is much more of an ir irritant. It, it, it lends itself to the negative politics and yet when you look at the growth of most cities, you see, and my wife has pointed that out, where you've had in some of the poorer areas, you'll have artists and, and you'll have artist little communes and things like that. And they're doing that to pool their resources to make the most of Because it's a place they certain, can afford. Right. Right. But then all of a sudden, though, you know, over time, those, mm -hmm. those folks get pushed farther and farther out. And then we get into the politics of it, and they make it a racist issue when oftentimes it's it's an economic issue. Mm -hmm. And the people who own the property or who want to develop it, they have the right to make those offers or to mm -hmm. sell their property if they choose. So it's a complex issue. Uh, we most assuredly have it here. And I hear the, the irony of a lot of folks whom you and I know are, let's say, Anglo entrepreneurs and young young people – who are moving over into East Austin and buying the property and then denouncing gentrification <laughs> yeah. when yeah. when yeah. they are a part they are a part of it. I know. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. yeah. Well, this is a, a good segue back to you, Forrest. So you were living in a home over in Shoal Creek for many, many years. Oh yeah. And now you and Linda, your wife, sold it and had moved downtown to be urbanites. Yeah. And how are you how is that process for you what do you find enjoyable about it compared to living in a neighborhood well our thought process on the thing was first of all it, the we had a beautiful huge backyard we had a lot that was over two-thirds of an acre and i had it landscaped to the nines and, the, and we had a three thousand square foot house and 
the fact is we're just two we don't have kids we're just a couple of you know a married couple and our, our big entertainment room was basically used just when we had parties. I mean, it was just sitting there sopping up air conditioning, you know. And we'd have parties for some of the groups we're involved with around town, that sort of thing. And that, that's the same for the big backyard. I mean, it was, it was great for our, some of our charities to go out there and have events. And it, it was an enjoyable thing. But eventually we just had to say, okay, we're, we're, we're pushing 60. Uh, come on. This, this, and then just the whole idea of low maintenance and being in the heart of everything so we wouldn't have to drive so much. It's just, mm-hmm. we were burning up Mopac left and right, just mm-hmm. going downtown to things we wanted to do. And if we could be right in the middle of it without having to use our cars, gosh, mm-hmm. that's just wonderful. And the whole idea of obviously, like I said, the low maintenance situation, no yard to take care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, we've reduced our footprint from 3,000 square feet to 1,225. Mm-hmm. And well, you have a great view. Have you got been to great, this place, Dan? Well, I got a, yeah. our view is pretty. Uh, we we look east back towards the yeah, it's downtown, the Frostback Tower. And you can see the uh, Austin Motel from your place. Which yeah, kind of sort of. Because you had yeah. me over one night. I our, oh yeah, one of our daughters was having a birthday party at the Austin Motel. She wanted to stay there because all the rooms are different themes. And I, being the progressive mom I am, I said, okay, that's fine. And she's like, and you can't be on site because it'll freak out my friends. I was like, okay, so I'll stay with Forrest and Linda in their townhome and look down on you. That's right, that's right. (laughs) And we'll be watching you at the pool. So (laughs) that was a great convenience. Thank you for sharing your place with me. Oh, sure, no Uh, problem. And I do like that at five o'clock every day, you two have drinks. Yeah, yeah. That's something cool. Did you ever make music, Forrest? Are you a musician too? Oh, I was in a Longhorn band. I played in the University Symphony. and. (laughs) Yeah. And what, I, what instrument did you? Well, play? I've, at various times, in Longhorn band I played clarinet, alto sax, bassoon. 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 Wow. But that's my main instrument was bassoon during concert season. I think Obviously, bassoon is Martin. a very sexy instrument. Yeah, it's, it's a fun. Just it's saying. a fun thing. Yeah, you get a lot of since there's, there's only one of you, you get a few solos every once in a while. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and Dan is a musician. I've seen him play the guitar and sing. But you have a story uh, when you were in Colorado. And your band opened for another band. Can you talk a little bit about that? We opened for an emerging new band that was called the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> they had they, they had been on Ed Sullivan, um, and Capitol Records signed them immediately, and then wanted to capitalize on that momentum. So they hired a promotional company who created the first closed circuit presentation of of musical groups that had ever been done like that on a large scale. They hired the main theaters in 18 cities, as I understand it. Um, They did not include, Austin was not that big at at the time or level at the time. Um, I was a student at the University of Colorado at the time with Towns Van Zandt was one of my peers up there. He and I used to play together. And um, anyway, I was in what was supposedly the the number one sort of cover band in Colorado at the time. And so they hired the best bands in these different communities to warm up the crowd for this closed circuit presentation from Capitol Records that included. So we got out and we came up on a rising orchestra <laughs> deal in their Paramount Theater wow. in Denver. This is an old Denver theater, wonderful place. We come up on a rising stage, play three or four songs. The place is packed with both with kids and their parents. Mm. 
because this is all brand new and the parents have no idea what this is and it's a little scary and it's way before the time when parents just dropped the kids off. Mm -hmm. This is March of 1964. Wow. And so... We come up out of there, play three or four songs, go down and sit in the audience, and then Leslie Gore, they they have the Capitol <laughs> Records, new. He, she's brand new there to them. Leslie Gore comes out and sings It's My Party, I think, which was one of the first ones that she did. And then another group that was a little bit more seasoned, the Beach Boys, and all of this, this is, is on crazy. All of this is on film, you know. Uh -huh. I mean, in other words, they're showing it there uh -huh. in Denver and these other cities. Um, and then the Beatles, and it, it was just an amazing experience. And and you know, I think many of us didn't know at the time what all was really happening with that. And but, so, uh, when you were playing, when you came up on out of the we stage, came up on the did stage. Did the girls think you were the Beatles, or like, were oh, they going no. crazy? We no, were they pretty, knew. pretty pretty easy to tell we weren't the Beatles. Mm. And but. Uh, we played two or three of their songs already. Wait, because, you opened for the Beatles uh, playing some of their songs? Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> just two or three covers of "You Know I Want to Hold Your Hand" or whatever else we did, That's... just just to be just to be in sync wow. with the group. And the group was just yelling and screaming and all that, but they were just excited about the day and they were excited about the Beatles. Well, and it's probably good that you were playing Beatles songs that they could hear because when the Beatles come out, everybody was screaming and couldn't hear them anyway. Oh, so absolutely. You did no, them a it, favor. It, was, it was an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. Is this the first time you guys have been on taping together? Together? Yes. Well, I think we yes. both <laughs> taped on radio both, before but, individually. Know, yeah, you're yeah, celebrities, we, and I'm grateful you're here, but I didn't know if you two had... <laughs> I think you are. I think you're, you're legends. There's a part of the show at the end of the show where I ask, if you could ask anyone a question, what question would that be? And then Marty and I will go out and ask that person your question to record them for a future podcast. Well, one thing that comes to mind, since you mentioned Sarah Bird, I'd like to ask her what her next book's going to be about. There's one. Perfect. And I would say, just because of the times that we're in and this specific day, that maybe I might want to ask Mayor Adler, because it's going to be, and that's presuming that he wins. He may not. But if he wins uh, and knows now, knows then what we don't know now, now that you know <laughs> what has happened here in this community with the elections and the campaigns and people's preferences, what are your top priorities of collaborative efforts to pull us together? Thank you so much for coming today. It was a marvelous show, and thank you for sharing your knowledge and history and je ne sais quoi. Okay. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Studio of the Future. I'm your host, Sarah Hickman. Our guests today were Dan Bullock and Forrest Priest. You can hear and see bonus content at studioofthefuture.org. Thanks to Marty Lester for engineering, mixing, and editing at Everywhere Audio in Austin, Texas. We'd like to thank the Peaceful Pelican of Palacios, Texas, for being a supporter of today's program. This historical three-story waterfront bed and breakfast is right on the bay, including spectacular views, homemade breakfasts, and a comfy place to relax. Mention this ad and you'll receive 20% off your first booking. Visit them at thepeacefulpelican.com. Until next time, keep your mind and your ears open. 